Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Jessica Davis, President, Insight Threat Intelligence, and the author of Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. Jessica has served more than 20 years in various defense and intelligence roles in Canada, including a four and a half year stint as a senior strategic analyst with Canada's Security Intelligence Service. Jessica and I talk about her comprehensive book on terror finance that is based on a study of some 50 terrorist organizations and terror attacks. Her focus takes on a new urgency with the return to power of the Taliban in Afghanistan and the rise of ideologically motivated violent extremists, and we discuss those threats. I hope you will enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. This podcast is sponsored by Nice Actimize. It's no longer enough to assess suspicious transactions, screening hits, or KYC risk events in isolation. You need to take a holistic, customer-centric approach to understand the customer, their behavior, and activity across the customer lifecycle. Nice Actimize takes this approach with our AML solutions using always-on AI to deliver effective monitoring, detection, and investigation. Understand your customer. Understand their risk. Fight financial crime with Nice Actimize. Visit niceactimize.com to learn more. Well, it's a great pleasure to have Jessica Davis president of Insight Threat Intelligence with me today to talk about her new book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. She is a more than 20-year veteran of the Canadian government's defense and intelligence community, including having served four and a half years as a senior strategic analyst with Canada's Security Intelligence Service, CSIS. Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much, Karen. Lovely to be here. So tell me about the book. I think that there's not anything out there quite like this right now, and it's pretty thorough. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to write it and then the methodology that went into writing it. What I wanted to do in writing this book is to really fill what I found to be the gap in the literature. So, you know, academics talk about this all the time, but briefly what I'm looking at when I'm saying that is there's a lot written about terrorist financing, but a lot of it is about maybe specific groups. So like a single case study or a very broad overview, often five, 10, 15 years old now on how terrorists finance money or finance their activities. So in writing this book, I wanted to bring, first of all, all of that really good work together into one space to really give people who are interested in the topic a really good overview. And then I wanted to look at the evidence in terms of what we actually know about terrorist financing. To do that, I used a case study approach. So I looked at 50 groups spanning a really broad time horizon from you know the 70s through to basically as soon as I stopped, put the pen down, which was last year, 2020. So 50 groups. And then I also looked at 50 plots and terrorist attacks. So plots being disrupted terrorist attacks. And then of course, attacks could be groups of individuals or cells who are conducting attacks and how they finance their activity. So I'm really trying to bring a lot of evidence to this and then build out a typology to explain how terrorists finance their activities. In doing that, I'm also trying to really go beyond the conversation about 
how terrorists raise money and how they move it, which is kind of where a lot of our financing knowledge stops. I want to talk about the other mechanisms involved, which include things like how they manage their money, how they store and invest it, and how they hide it, for instance. And what did you discover generally about the ways in which terrorists fund themselves and their operations? The big thing that I found is that there's actually quite a lot of similarity between how terrorists fund their organization, so the group itself, and how operations are funded. So the same mechanisms or the same methods apply across the spectrum. So terrorists will raise money through criminal activity, from donations for both their group, their organizational support, and also for their operations. They'll use criminal activity, for instance, so there's a lot of similarities. What really differs between attacks and organizational financing is the scope and scale. So for a terrorist attack, we'll see generally low-level frauds. For terrorist organizations, we'll generally see like much bigger, potentially financial frauds or criminal organizations really at this point in time. The thing that I found that was really interesting is how rarely we have evidence of how terrorists organizations fund attacks. So most of the time, in most of the cases that I looked at, the attacks themselves were self-funded. So we don't have a lot of evidence of money moving from a terrorist organization to an attack cell. But I found that kind of interesting. So, you know, there's this disconnect between what organizations do and then how they actually fund their attacks, which should be the bread and butter of a terrorist group if you think about it that way. Well, that raises an interesting question that I guess it points out that it can be difficult to trace the actual funding that's intended for an attack, if it's at that kind of level, but it may not be so difficult to track the organizational funding that keeps the group alive. And so with that in mind, or perhaps, you know, correct that if I haven't got that quite right, you know, given the various ways in which terrorists fund themselves, that our listeners are at financial institutions, where did you see the intersection of funding for terrorist groups for their operations that it hit the financial system? I think what you're saying there is exactly right. So a lot of our counter-terrorist financing practices and policies, including in the formal financial sector, are really aimed at that organizational funding. So a lot of it really hits at that higher level, that bigger scope and scale. Where we really start to get into difficulty is trying to identify financing for attacks. And you know, with the rise of lone actor terrorism in North America and in Europe over the last five, eight years, there's been an increased focus on using financial intelligence to identify the preparatory activities for terrorist attacks. And I think that's exactly where we need to be going. The difficulty here is in trying to push that down to the banking level. I think there's some diminishing returns there in the sense that banks are well positioned to detect anomalous activity that happens at scale. So credit card frauds, for instance, there's very clear typologies you can develop big data solutions, you can develop algorithms to identify that kind of activity. When we think about terrorist financing, particularly terrorist financing for attacks, this becomes a bespoke data problem. There are very few concrete activities that you can sort of describe as actual indicators. Even the ones that exist, I would say, generate far more false positives than actual useful leads. So this really becomes a place where we need to have a lot more interaction between law enforcement, security services, and compliance officers to help them identify the appropriate leads. Well, you mentioned uh, banks, and I'm also thinking about all the fintechs that are probably listing out there and others that are responsible for innovative payment systems, how we 
can track those kinds of payments. And I think you've raised the difficulties. So is a lot of it about the kind of ongoing information sharing that happens between banks, fintechs, and law enforcement? Seems like that's a big part of it. Yeah, I would say that that's a really big part of doing this efficiently. There are other tools that can potentially help. So I think that geographic targeting orders, so when we look at particular jurisdictions as being suspicious or problematic, that can be helpful, particularly if we're not talking about you know, huge volumes of activity. So I know, you know, some banks have had some luck looking at particularly transactions to Turkey or transactions to Syria, and then having a a deeper dive down into those transactions to identify suspicion. But I think that a lot of it really does come down to working with police and security services and even getting that information really early on when we start to have a developing security problem, we're still going to want to see that collaboration. A word of caution here, though, you know, there's a lot of variation between jurisdictions in terms of how that collaboration happens. And so I do think that internationally, we need to be strengthening the regime in terms of human rights and privacy around financial intelligence. I have fewer concerns in countries with strong rule of law and and good privacy considerations. I have more concern in a lot of other jurisdictions. And we've already seen some of the abuses of financial intelligence to, for instance, target dissidents, human rights activists, etc. Well, interesting, yes. And that's been a big question as to how to respond to that for Egmont and the whole association of FIUs. So tell me a little bit, uh, you know, it's out there, it gets people's attention. Cryptocurrencies, how much are they being used by terrorist organizations now? What is the potential for their use going forward? Yeah, the cryptocurrency question is always such an interesting one. And this is something that I've actually been working on since I think it was 2014. I wrote my first paper on terrorist use of Bitcoin. At the time, it was very minimal. And I would still say that now it's still pretty minimal when you look at the overall trends and activities in terrorist groups. But sometimes that overall picture isn't all that helpful when we're talking about specific investigations. So the thing that I like to say about this is We have a limited use of cryptocurrency by terrorists to fund activities, fund operations, but it does happen. So all law enforcement, security services, banks, financial technology companies all need to be aware that this is a way that the terrorists will exploit their products, exploit their tools, but they're probably not going to see it very much. That being said, I will say that this is a growing trend in the terrorist financing space, and it's especially growing amongst ideologically motivated violent extremists. So your neo-Nazis, your anti-government extremists, any group or ideology or movement with that anti-government bent is going to be particularly drawn to cryptocurrencies because they're trying to move away from sort of the state-backed currencies. And I do think that this is going to grow over time. I'm going to come again to uh, talk about right-wing terror and, and neo-Nazis, but you know one of the big issues that clearly is on people's mind right now with the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban or the return of the Taliban to running Afghanistan is what kind of threat is out there in terms of attacks from radical Islamic groups who are going to attack North America, particularly as a result of this change in power and is there a resurgent threat and what's it likely to look like? I would definitely argue that there is a resurgent threat. I think that that threat has been growing even before the Taliban took over. So ISIL Khorasan province had and continues to have a pretty solid footprint in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda has been operating there for a number of years. I think in the short term, we're much more likely to see attacks 
within Afghanistan. So we're already seeing this to a certain extent, because it's really about the contest of territory and power in Afghanistan. When you have multiple groups operating in a country, they're contesting for territory because that territory is their taxation base, particularly in the case of Afghanistan. That's where ISIL, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda are generating the majority of their funds from taxing economic activity within their area of control or influence. So they're going to be contesting that for some time to come. Then I would say that the next threat is probably in terms of the region and regional power brokers. So we've already seen attacks against Chinese interests in Pakistan. That's likely to increase. There could be attacks against other Pakistani interests. There's a whole bunch of different things that are happening in the region that are likely to be targets for attacks. And then I think the third tier of that is really North America or Europe. It's difficult to say in terms of time frame. Obviously, Al-Qaeda has an ongoing and persistent interest in attacking America, particularly North America, more generally Europe, even more broadly. We'll see about that. I think that the US and potentially some of the other NATO allies will be keen to destroy any of that external attack capability through, for instance, drone strikes. So I don't expect that in, in the short term, but you know, longer term, if our counterterrorism attention gets turned elsewhere, that's a very real threat. Well, I, I think it's important what you've said to include Europe and even to think about the region and nations in the region that are going to be affected by the rise of terrorist bases potentially in struggles over territory in Afghanistan and in, in that part of the Middle East. So in saying that, are there things that we should be doing now to anticipate this resurgence and to protect ourselves? Well, I think from a financial perspective, there's a number of things that we can be looking at. I think certainly making sure that, I think that the broader financing considerations here are now regional. So when the Taliban wasn't in power, there was a bit more willingness to have financial interactions with Afghanistan and the region. And I think that we need to be looking at that very seriously and considering whether or not that that's a thing that most banks or other financial institutions or even money service businesses really want to be taking on in terms of risk. Because the reality is, is that that is how the Taliban will be moving money internationally. That is how Al-Qaeda will be moving money internationally and even the Islamic State. So wherever there's interactions with the Afghan Hawala sector, that's going to be a point of vulnerability. You know, there's the financial piece of it, certainly. But, you know, I think long term, we're really in a bit of a rock and a hard place with the Taliban in power. I think our best case scenario is really that the groups there remain actively infighting for the time being and unable to conduct external operations, which is not obviously a good prognosis for the people of Afghanistan. So, you know, it's a bit of a quagmire there. And I'm aware, if we could just say something quickly about, are there things to be done to target, you know, you talked about the Hawalas and that kind of funding, but there are also financial professionals that enable the movement of money on behalf of terrorist organizations, aren't there? And is there some way we should be targeting those people? Yeah, this was something that I found very interesting in the research for my book, Illicit Money. The extent to which professionals can and are involved in terrorist financing. I would say that it's far less in the financing space than it is in the money laundering space, for instance. But as soon as you get an organization that has a surplus of funds, they're looking for ways to move that money internationally. They're looking for investments, all those kinds of things. So the role of those individuals, professionals in terrorist financing is important. The other thing I discovered is that a lot of terrorist organizations will actually find insiders within financial institutions and money service businesses, of course, to facilitate their movement of funds without raising any suspicions from headquarters or other financial institutions. 
So this really raises that insider threat risk for a lot of banks and potentially through correspondent banking arrangements. So I think that's quite a difficult thing. The other piece of this that's quite challenging is that I'd like to say that detecting these professionals and, and bringing them to justice is really the purview of law enforcement and security services around the world. But frankly, in many jurisdictions where I've worked, the police don't have the specialized knowledge to be able to do this or really the investigative resources. So it really becomes incumbent on the banks to be identifying some of these insiders and trying to root it out. I would say too that they have the specialized knowledge and information to identify anomalous activity in their operations. And so that's where I'd like to see banks doing a bit more. And for them, you know, it's really that reputational risk if they're found to be exploited by some of these actors, particularly from a terrorism perspective. So having raised the issue of terror attacks by radical Islamic groups, the immediate threat and in a bigger threat in the US and Canada right now is arguably, and in Europe, right-wing extremists. Are there some things that you can say that you've learned about how they have been funded and operated and what we can do to counter that? We're lucky to a certain extent in terms of the right wing or ideologically motivated violent extremist threat in that the majority of the activities that they engage in are lone actor attacks. And we have a history of looking at lone actor attacks in North America and in Europe because that's what a lot of our jihadist threat did for the last five or six years. There was a lot of that level of activity. And the ideology doesn't change the financing piece of it, which is interesting. So when we talk about self-funding or self-financing for a lone actor attack, it looks very similar between somebody who's associated with Al-Qaeda and somebody who's associated with a neo-Nazi organization, for instance. So we have that base knowledge. I think though here, we're also encountering some of our own biases in terms of what constitutes terrorism, how we can use our domestic tools to counter that. And also at the same time, a lot of our counter-terrorist financing tools have really been aimed outward. So looking for that financing piece that emanates from another country and is coming into our countries. And that's not right when we think about the lone actor threat, because lone actors, whether it's right wing, whether it's another kind of extremism, are funding their activities from the jurisdiction where they're conducting the attack. So we really have to be turning those lenses inward. I know in some jurisdictions, especially in the United States, that becomes a bit more difficult because of specifics of law, but there are tools that we can use here. So this is really about identifying changes in behavior, um, looking at particular websites where they're making donations, crowdfunding, causes, those kinds of things. And for banking professionals, this becomes difficult because there's a layer between the actual bank and the extremist cause, for instance, through that crowdfunding site. So do banks then need to do due diligence on every single crowdfunding campaign that's happening in order to make sure that they're not facilitating the financing? No, I think that's a bit too far. But there could be some requirements by banks or other financial institutions or intermediaries to require that any company to which they provide financial services is doing the required due diligence to make sure that their platforms aren't being exploited by terrorist or violent extremists. So I think, you know, part of it is really about pushing some of our counter-terrorist financing tools maybe outside of the traditional financing sector and into financial technology companies more, into crowdfunding companies, into social media companies, and making sure that they're all understanding how their products can be used and exploited by extremists. So I think that there is a lot of pessimism right now around the return of the Taliban. 
with regard to these ideologically motivated uh, violent extremists. But we have actually often captured some of the players in these groups and stopped their attacks. Can you put some optimism into the end of, the, of our discussion as we close? Or how do you see this? Yes and no. You can have some optimism and you can have some pessimism. I think my experience tells me that counter-terrorist financing can be effective, particularly the use of financial intelligence to identify leads, to identify changes in behavior, patterns of life, for instance. It can be very useful there. I know this to be true. I've used it in that way. However, when we look at the evidence of how effective or what the outcomes of our counter-terrorist financing policies and activities have been globally, we're actually confronted with almost a complete lack of that evidence, that there's actually no way to really know if, for instance, the requirement to criminalize counter-terrorist financing is useful. From my experience, I suspect that it is, but there's no evidence. So I think that we're really in a spot right now where practitioners can tell us, yes, this is something that works, but when policymakers are looking for that hard evidence, they are really in a bit of a bind. So I think that where we need to go as a community next is to be producing some of that evidence to support better policies, figure out what exactly works, because there's a lot of different ways that we go about countering the financing of terrorism. There's a lot of different nuances depending on what country we're talking about. So figuring out what really works and perhaps refining some of those policies, both at the international level and then also domestically. Thank you, Jessica. Jessica Davis, President Insight Threat Intelligence, and the author of Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century, which is going to be available, I think, as we put this podcast out there. Yes, it'll be out on the 30th of September. Thanks again, Jessica. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jessica Davis, President, Insight Threat Intelligence, and the author of Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. I hope that you found what you heard interesting and compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you will receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.